Welcome to Sourced, a podcast about the art of audience engagement at a time when competition for attention has never been greater. What works, what doesn't work, and what's changing. Sourced is brought to you by 55 Comms. We've been telling stories, learning about audiences, and helping clients for more than 25 years. Shane Rogers is so many things. He's been a journalist, a newspaper editor, a marketing director, a business general manager, a chief operating officer, and a sought-after strategist. He's also someone we've been fortunate to work with at 55 Comms. Shane's also a researcher on social and workplace changes whose insights have built an audience of millions across the globe. Shane sparked his huge following with a LinkedIn post six years ago entitled, The Career Advice I Wish I Had at 25. He wrote it quickly one Saturday night with a glass of red wine next to him. He posted it, went to bed with his conscience cleared and woke to a post that was going viral online. He's continued those insights with his latest book, Work NATO, Reimagining the Way You Work to Live. This book looks at our relationship to work in a fast-changing world, written by an author with three decades' experience in managing people. My name is Michael Crutcher. Welcome to Sourced. Shane Rogers, welcome to the Sourced podcast and welcome back to the 55 comms offices. It's always great to have you here. It's been decades, it feels like, that we've been crossing paths first in newspaper offices and then in different offices when 55 comms began and as you working with some of our clients over time. But today you come back in the guise of an author after releasing Work NATO. Welcome, Shane. Thanks, Michael. It's a great pleasure to be back here. And you're right, it does seem like we've been crossing paths for a very, very long time um, and hopefully we'll continue to do that for a very long time into the future. So um, thank you for having me. Well, you describe the work NATO, the title of your book, you describe it this way in your book. There is a quiet rumbling, rolling like a gathering thunder through our workplaces, our homes and our lives in general. The work NATO has been building for a while and now it is here. It's a great description. You're a very busy person, so why did you write Work NATO? I wrote Work NATO because I think because I started my career as a writer and journalist, you're always conscious of a story. And it felt to me that there was a really interesting major story emerging globally that we were largely missing. And you've referred to that LinkedIn post from a few years ago on the career advice I wish I had at 25. Now, the audience that came from that was always a mystery to me. I thought, seriously, I mean, what is it about that post? And it took me a while. It was was something like 11,000 comments, um, emails, feedback from that. And when I started to work my way through those, I realised there was a really... uh, a really powerful emerging feeling among human beings that something about the way they're working wasn't quite right. So I think 
I decided to write Worknado because I really wanted to try and get to the heart of what that was. So effectively the book covers three things. It's looking at that underlying trend of, I guess, some disquiet around the nature of work and how that was working with the way people balance lives, particularly in the knowledge economy, overlaid with just, you know, three decades of observing people in the workplace and what I call the secret languages of the workplace uh, and also just looking ahead because I've always been interested in how micro trends become macro trends so I was always always interested in looking at the things that are happening now and how will that play out over time so it was all those things that I really just wanted to get down. And you started writing WorkNATO pre-COVID so how did the original idea of the book and the final version of the book that's just come out recently, how did that change with COVID? Well, I think, to me, when you've got structural change that happens quickly, there's always a, an assumption that it's actually happened quickly. So what we saw during COVID is a requirement to very, very quickly change the way we work. Well, like Virtually overnight, we had to have people working at home instead of the offices. We had to have technology that supported that. So, and a lot, of, a lot of people thought, okay, well, that's COVID uh, suddenly requiring something else. And in, in part, that was true. But because I was already writing about what was happening below the surface, it looked very different to me. Uh, what I saw was a structural change that was ready to, to burst anyway, um, suddenly coming, being fast forwarded by quite a few years. So, if you imagine that there was a a whole lot of people in the workforce thinking, look, oh, this, this, this is just not working for me. I mean, why am I working nine to five? Why have we got this rigidity? Why are we all in peak hour at the same time? Why are my kids growing up um, without me being there? There's all these things that were really unnerving people. And then suddenly, uh, overnight, I saw that go to the surface where suddenly people were picking their kids up from school. Um, they were suddenly working from home and instead of getting permission around some of these things, they just worked their day. You know, they might start at seven in the morning and they might work again at night. Because no one was watching, humans started to actually readjust their working life around the realities of how humans have to live their lives, how families have to live their lives. So I then had to rewrite the book, I guess, in a sense, to recognise that reality and try to rationalise the whole situation in a COVID context. Congratulations on the book. It is a really good read. It's uh, it, there are so many parts to what I didn't expect. You write that history at the moment. We're talking about the COVID period as the great resignation, but you write that maybe we won't look at it as, as a great resignation in time. But maybe, as you write, how we threw everything into the air and then put it all back together. Is that what it feels like for you? Yeah, I, I think that's true, uh, and I really hope that's how it plays out in history. I, I think we're in a dangerous period at the moment where a lot of the debate is around do we go back to pre-COVID, as in do we force everyone back into offices, uh, or do we adopt what we did during COVID? The reality is we need a new narrative, we need a new reality, we need to take the things we did pre-COVID that were important, and a lot of that is around socialisation, it's around uh, creative um, collaboration, it's around training, the subtlety of training. We need to preserve that. But at the same time, it would be a massive loss to humans in the way they live if we didn't learn from the fact that we could have that COVID situation work very differently and things go okay. You know, we, we didn't, the whole world didn't collapse during that time. In fact, it worked, uh, it worked quite well. So for me, it's really now about finding a 
new reality and for humans to start to really think about the way they work. And I think in a sense this is, this is broader. There's a lot of issues that come into play here, but one is around you know, why are we working like the industrial revolution period? You know, this, this rigidity around hours and all that. I mean, we should be questioning that. In a knowledge economy where you pretty much can work from everywhere, it's not really about forcing people into an office. It's about what's the best place for somebody to work today? Do we trust them to do that? And do we recognise that humans have lives outside of work and we work best when we actually can integrate all that? And then you get other things coming in like artificial intelligence where that's going to change the game as well. So to me, this is the period in history where for the first time in a very, very long time, we're actually questioning the way we work and giving ourselves permission to have different conversations. And there are, I guess, wider discussions around that which you sort of bring into the book and you talk about maybe some terms that should be retired uh, given the changing nature of the discussion as you just brought up. Terms like work-life balance and change management. Let's start with work-life balance. Is that the right term or is that term not exists? Look, my view is work-life balance is probably the wrong term now. Uh, terms tend to have their place in history. I think for a long time, I think once technology became all pervasive, once we had yeah, laptops that we took home from work, um, certainly once we had mobile phones, there was this sense that work is following us everywhere and we are losing our work-life balance because there was a blurring between the lines. And that was based again on an old analogue world where you, know, you, you work your eight hours, you go home, you switch off, you watch TV. I think where we progressively got that wrong is we, we treated it as a negative because devices followed us. And I think in the new world, um, particularly if you've got a job that you quite enjoy, you need to get your life in balance rather than get life and work as a separate thing because for most people work and life lands you know people a lot, a lot of people their best friends are the people they work with they enjoy their work a lot of their socialization is around work particularly in a world where there's less community-based socialization so in a sense we've been resisting something that we probably should be embracing so that's my view is it's about life balance now it's about feeling that your life is in balance um, and that some of that's work some of it's recreation some of it's what you do at home Change management. You and I both worked for an organisation one time which seemed to be crawling with uh, change managers for uh, some time. They seem to be everywhere uh, around the, uh, the building. What about now that term change management? So I think change management grew in that sort of era where we had you know, the computer era followed by the digital era, which is now being followed by the AI era, and an organisation saying, whoa, this change is happening, this is big change, so we need people to see that through. And I think in the early days of that, when change was happening at a particular pace, you were bringing in new technology. It was very big project-based change, and that kind of worked with this whole kind of set piece, start, finish. The problem now is change is happening so quickly, uh, the turnaround is happening so quickly, the options are happening so quickly, you can't treat change as a project anymore. Change has to be done every single day. So I, I say in the book, change is management. You know, management is change. Um, that's, that's really the game now. It's not a change management, it's just management. Shane, you cover so many parts of the work journey in WorkNATO. Some things I didn't even think about until I was reading the book. One of those things, of course, is working for yourself. And you discuss this trend in the book. Is it a generational trend? Is it just a general trend? What should we know right now about working for ourselves? Yeah, look, it's really interesting. Now, 
I don't know if it's generational or not, and these are this, this is purely a personal observation, but when I was at school, uh, and when you go to guidance counsellors and career days, not a single person mentioned to me, hey, you could work for yourself or you could start a business. And when I look back then, the people I knew from that era who started their own business are people who came from families who were in business. So there tended to be a generational thing. If your family owned a local store or something like that, you'd be entrepreneurial by nature. But almost nobody else uh, was starting businesses. Uh, it took a long time for me to realise that was actually a really um, viable option for people. Fast forward to now, there's a, there's a lot of international studies done on the aspirations of young people. So when you look at that sort of Gen Z type group at the moment, studies are showing that between 55 and 65% of that group only ever want to work for themselves. They actually don't, you know, the only boss they want is themselves. Now, if that actually carries through into the workplace and that aspiration becomes a reality, we're looking at a very, very different world of work where we'll have a whole lot of freestanding individual entrepreneurs who be basically working for themselves and that creates a whole lot of other things I, I think i talk in the book about we'll probably have a lot of people who have hollywood style agents because you'll have a whole lot of individual entrepreneurs who have a skill base and then they'll probably need agents to cluster them together for particular projects or to find their next work so this could see a, a you know a major major structural change just based on aspirations around being your own boss Shane, you write as well about 70-year careers, which can sound a bit daunting for those of us who grew up with this prospect that you went from school or uni into a job for 40 years and stayed in the same job, got your gold watch and took off. Obviously, that's changing. Your 70-year career takes really interesting. So what should we know about that? So the 70-year career, and you know, it could be an 80-year career, this is pure mathematics, right? So if you think about it, uh, a lot of the uh, futurists, a lot of the medical futurists are saying that a child born today has probably got a better than 50% chance of living past 100. Uh, and that's that's very different to a world where people would work till 65, uh, retire for three years and then die, um, which, you know, that's, that was the harsh reality of human civilization for a very, very long time. You lived to 100, Um it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that you're going to go into the workforce in your early 20s and you're going to leave it in your 60s and then live another 40 years. Uh, it, it just doesn't add up. You know, welfare systems won't work. Um, even self-funded retirement really won't work around that. But the bigger thing is the human capacity that would be left passive would be a massive loss to humanity. So 70-year careers will just be based on humans living longer, uh, particularly if we can overcome obesity and some of these issues and people using that time in a different way. So I think you'll, you'll, you'll get people cranking up and down instead of thinking this intensity where you just you know, work at high intensity maybe for 40 years and then it all comes to a screeching stop. You, know, you might have years where you're working three days a week and you might have times where you go through and you work not for profit and other times where you're at high intensity corporate. But we're going to see a very, very different rhythm of working life purely based on people living a lot longer and wanting to be um, fully occupied during that time. We'll also see the nature and the attitudes towards ageing change as well because as people live longer, everything about that will change society's perception of ageing. So as part of that, you really break down then, I guess, some different terms and how they apply in the modern day workplace. One of those is portfolio careers. Can you talk about those? Yeah. So again, if you look at the norms that a lot of us grew up with, you, you, you would never leave school in the probably 80s or 90s even and think, oh, I'm going to get a few different jobs to fill up my week. Um, that, that was rare thinking. But 
a few things have changed. One now the the options are there to do things differently. So a portfolio career is effectively when you work for a few different employers or or do a few different things to fill your week. So instead of having a, a you know five day a week job, forty hours a week, you might be on two paid boards, and then you might be a consultant somewhere for two days a week, or and you might work part time somewhere, and you fill your week that way. Gives you different variety. It gives you different vantage points in life, um, and it's a different way of working now. I know it's only a micro trend at the moment, but if you look carefully at the figures, um, it's it's a micro trend that could easily become a macro trend, and I'm particularly seeing it. You know, um, people in their 40s and 50s, um, and even 60s now, suddenly look at that as a viable option. Um, as it grows, more and more people are saying, "Hey, I could do that too." You write about job interviews as well. So if we say we're not going to work for ourselves. We're actually going to work for other people. Obviously, we have to do job interviews and do them well. Now, you've done so many job interviews over the years and you outlined this really well in the book. I was interested as part of your look into job interviews, your recommendation to know your Google self, which is a really good way to talk about it. Can you describe what it is knowing your Google self and why it's important? Look, it's a, a simple reality now that most people, before they do a meeting, after they meet somebody, will go and Google them. Um, that, that's kind of the default now to find out you know, who somebody is or what they do. And knowing what happens when your name gets put into Google is a really important part of knowing how you're perceived by the wider world. And Google's a really interesting thing because it takes a whole lot of information, all of which is online, of course, but it will look for sources on you and pull them together. So for most people, that's going to be the starting point of where perceptions are formed. So you really need to control that. For your own personal branding, you need to be constantly thinking about, okay, how do I look on Google? And is it the way I want to look? And do I need to do something about it? So uh, absolutely vital. And I've got to say, I'd do it. You know, if I'm interviewing anyone or whatever, I'd Google them first because you just never know. That's right. It's <laughs> true, isn't it? And, and looking at social media as well. I mean, I know I've uh, been on job panels and looked at someone's social media and thought I don't think this is going to be a great fit potentially but I mean you even put a line in there uh, from John Hardigan who was a CEO at News Corp when we both worked there and you mentioned that Hardo sort of looked at you know uh, people like us the PLU can you talk a bit about that? Yeah so I think I mean Hardo is a really really interesting CEO like a really smart guy and and a really deep thinker and I think what he was saying with the, the people like us is we have a culture here and our culture is strong and we get growth and success because we have this knack of bringing people into the culture who fit the culture. And you and I have both been part of that. It would be hard to articulate what that culture is. And it's a, and it's, <laughs> yes. But, you know, it's an interesting mix of very, very different personalities, but there is some underlying culture there where we all knew we were News Corp people yeah. uh, and we could operate and thrive in that culture for all its you know chaos um, but it was you know in so many ways a wonderful place to work and I think the really great companies understand their culture and don't even have to articulate it and they preserve and grow the culture because they do attract people who enhance it and belong in it. What about really great companies understanding innovation? because I'm interested in you know, the way you write about this in the book, but that discussion about innovation and there's so many different approaches that companies have towards innovation and finding 
something new, something that'll be profitable, some better way to do business. What is your general take, and especially in your role as a Chief Operating Officer of the Australian Industry Group? I mean, you got to see this firsthand at different places. What's your take on the way Australian companies are approaching innovation? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting and important question. So I think having worked at quite a few different places, there's a, just like there's a change management industry, there's also an innovation industry. And it's where you uh, create, institutionalise and, and, and I guess create a, a structure around innovation and make it a thing, if you like. It's like the, the, these are things are innovation. So then we put these in the innovation box and these are the things we're going to do that are going to be innovation. Now, generally, my experience with that is it creates a whole lot of work and doesn't produce very much. Uh, the only way I've ever seen innovation work is if there's a mindset and that mindset is about an unrelenting discontent with the status quo. Um, you know, the great companies will be proud of what they're doing, but they'll never think they're finished uh, and they'll always be thinking, how do I do this better? And I think in the, I've been in a lot of sort of national executive teams and the really great ones are the ones where just by nature, every time something comes up, they think, well, how can I do this better? Now that's innovation. That That's innovation that is a mindset around always thinking, okay, but is there a better way? Is there a better way? Because innovation at its heart is just about finding better ways to do things. So I think as soon as we create an industry around innovation, you actually start to kill it um, because you put it over in a a side box instead of in the mainstream. So I think the great companies are innovative by nature and half the time they don't even realise they are. It's just the nature of who they are and who they employ. Is innovation a generational thing? Are some generations better at it or is it a mindset thing? Look, I actually don't think it's a generational thing so much, but I think the way people approach it. So I think there's a rigidity around, if you go kind of the baby boomer sort of Gen X period, quite a conservative um, group of generations, if you like. And I think that's because um, risk was actually uh, talked out of us a little bit, Um, you know, quite conservative during that period. And I think also the stakes were high. Like you didn't, if you tried something and failed in those generations or in certain eras the stakes are quite high you know there was there was really not very many safety nets i think for the younger generations particularly ones who live in baby boomer headquarters as in they can return home to their parents whenever (laughs) they like um they're far more likely to take a risk and try new things and be prepared to fail and not see it failure as an end but Mm. just as a means to the next end and dealing with that failure i mean it's so important in in i guess many business careers over the years are we getting better at dealing with failure and risks do you think or is it something we can still improve on look i think we're getting better in pockets to me there's a lot of stuff that we talk about a lot but whether we live it i think is probably um questionable so almost every company will say no we we accept failure and we tolerate failure but the culture doesn't necessarily support that. Like people just don't like to fail. It, it really isn't. Um, it really isn't a mindset that people have where they say failure is good because I've learned something from it. Most people, if they fail, are going to feel very, very bad about it and take a long time to feel like okay, that's been a learning. So culturally, I think we've got a long way to go on that. We're talking the talk now, but I think the walking the walk part has probably got a got a way to go. You know, Kerry Packer said if. You've never made a mistake, you've never made a decision. And I think uh, we have to start to recognise that that's a reality. But it's a cultural evolution that's still happening, I think. 
Shane, I once spoke to an NRL coach and asked him what he looked for in young players. And one of the things he said that was most important to him was how young players overcame mistakes in the game. He liked to see whether a player would make a mistake and then let that mistake impact him for the rest of the game or made a mistake and just brushed it off like nothing happened and just continued to play. Is there any similarities for you in business with how people deal with mistakes? I think it is. And actually, I think sport is a brilliant training ground for understanding the nature of failure in business. Because I think in sport, we tend to talk about success because that's really the aspiration of everybody in sport. But if you look at it, that's the number of sports where failure is just part of what you do. You know, you can be you can be Don Bradman, but you still get out. Yeah, um, that's right. Quite a bit. You know, if you if you play baseball, even if you're the best player in the world, you're going to fail more than you succeed. Yep. Um, it is a really interesting training ground around failure being learning. It doesn't mean failure feels good, but uh, I think understanding that bigger picture of what failure teaches you, and it, it's always interesting. I, I find it. Um, I think it was Lee Trevino, the golfer, said that um, God always holds something back. And, and really what he was saying is no one can actually be perfect. Like you, you can yeah. be Roger Federer at the top of your game in tennis and you're still going to double fall. Yeah. Uh, so there is a bit of a nature of humans were meant to fail. We, we have a, an, a, a need to fail um, because otherwise we'd all be perfect and the mm. whole system would break down. So I think for business uh, that a lot of sports people become great at business um, yeah. because they have that special skill, I think. There seems to be, Shane, plenty of complex problems that we're facing in workplaces these days, from macro things like climate change, et cetera, to micro things as well. You've got a great take on this in your book when you're talking about climate change and you're mentioning that social media and mainstream media tend to amplify voices at both ends of the spectrum. And it's not just climate change either, but those loud voices get the most attention. You quote one prominent businessman who says that uh, sometimes these are practical problems for practical people, take out some of that amplification. How hard is it for those practical people, do you think, to get a voice these days? So I think in a workforce context, not hard, but it does require them to speak up because I think a lot of it is around the theatre of meetings and, and who actually holds the power, who really controls the agenda. So... I think the ones who are highly respected and highly regarded can be really influential voices. But I think this is a broader issue for society, if you like. Uh, I think one of the, I guess one of my frustrations, particularly sort of the national narrative on almost everything, is we tend to go to the extremes. Mm. But if you actually look for the things that unite us on almost every issue, they're not particularly controversial. Like, like to me, the environment debate is classic, which is the, the one you're referring to, but at one end of the spectrum, you know, the world's going to end tomorrow. At the other end, you know, climate science is fraud. Um, I mean, they're the two extremes. In the middle, when you talk about do we want a more sustainable world? Yeah. yeah. Um, you're not going to get any arguments on that. You know, do we want less pollution in a cleaner world? Yeah. Um, so this is the thing about national narrative. We, we've taken these things to the extreme. We get less done because instead of letting the practical people uh, who can come up with the answers run the show, we'll tend to let those extremes of debate roll out because of the nature of the way that media and social media is now. And I think it goes through almost every issue and there's always going to be if it's the right thing to do, um, you're going to get more people on board than not on board and we get an awful lot done if that's what the national political narrative was rather than the extremes. Just a few topics I was hoping for your quick take on. 
work from home is that here to stay is it not we've touched on this already in the in the podcast so work from home I've got a bit of a problem with this idea of you're either working from home or you're working from the office that's too simplistic it's about working from wherever wherever is appropriate today and that might be home uh, that might be the office it might be the you know, at a client premises, it could be at a cafe, it could be you've gone to the beach a day earlier and you're just working in your holiday unit, if you're working, uh, you know, to me that's, this is a problem. And some people are working in different cities in their home base. You know, I spent most of the last four years where all my staff were working interstate and I was working in Brisbane. It's, it's perfectly functional in this world. So I think we've just got to have a more um, complex debate around this. But short answer is, look, working from home makes sense for a lot of jobs on a lot of days. You write why busyness, so being busy, is a myth. There are only 24 hours in the day and you're doing something for each of those 24 hours. It could be sleeping, it could be working, it could be doing recreation. This is a mindset. One of the biggest, most important human skills is prioritisation. And if you've only got 24 hours in the day, that's never going to change. So (laughs) all you can do is prioritise what you do in those days and the mindset you bring to it. Why you should always act 35 in the workplace. So I think people kind of when they're young, they think, oh, I'm young, I'm inexperienced, so they tend to undersell themselves. Um, Sometimes when they get older, they think, oh, I'm just the old person in the room now. I think 35 is that sort of age where you feel experienced enough that you're pretty confident about most things. Uh, You haven't even thought about ageing yet. It's kind of of that peak time of self-perception around work. If you hold it at that... If, you, if you're 20 and capable of running the company, think that way. Um, if you're 70 and still at the peak of your energy, think think that way. Just centre on 35 and you'll be fine the whole career. What about career progression, including going from school to uni, uni to work? Where are we at with that now? Uh, look, I think quite broken. Uh, one of the things that didn't recover after the global financial crisis was young people and the transition to work. It went backwards in a huge way off the GFC, which I assume was because people were doing less training of graduates, less investment in that. And if you look at since then, the overall unemployment rate has gone very low and it's sub 4%, but youth unemployment hasn't gone anywhere near that low. Uh, We still have a structural problem and partly it's because the pathways from education to work are not really reflecting the times. Um, you know, companies aren't getting what, what they want from that. The systems haven't evolved as quickly as they should. Um, there's just a bit of a structural imperfection there. And one way or another, we need to fix that. And even the nature of quite specific education. If you look at my you know, thesis around a, uh, like a 70-year a career, you know, the hypothesis around that would suggest getting one degree when you're 20 for four years on some specialist thing. I mean, it's, it's just not going to cut it. There's going to have to be much more flexible approaches to the way we do the pathways. We see so much now about artificial intelligence and its potential impact on workplaces. And it seems it's been sped up since ChatGPT came on board in, I think, late November last year, we just have this discussion now about what AI can do in the workplace and how it might impact jobs. What are your thoughts on what we should know about AI in the workplace? Yeah, so it's another really good question. The thing about it is we've got three 
eras of major technological changes that have happened kind of in, in a, basically a single generation, and that is, you know, that we had the computer era, which got rid of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of jobs, millions of jobs, um, followed by the digital era, which did the same. Now we've got the AI era. We have insights into this, and what will happen is things that logically are done by AI will be done by AI, and humans will move on to do other things. Now, the work that McKinsey did on the computer era suggested there was a 15 million net increase in jobs off that because we created new capacity to do new things. Humans will move into things that humans can only do. Humans will move into things that require creativity. Um, So the whole nature of human aspiration and activity will move to a different place. AI will take on the things that make sense. And who knows, like I, I think there's a lot of assumptions around what AI will do. It'll it'll end up finding its place. It's like um, things like 3D printing. You know, everyone said the whole world's going to be 3D printed. Some things are where it makes sense, but plenty of things aren't. Um, AI will be the same. It'll it'll progressively take over things that it can do better than humans. Humans will move on to things that humans can do better than machines. You write a really interesting part in the book, Shane, about burnout and your own experience with burnout and, you know, sometimes when your health wasn't as uh, great uh, at times. And I remember some of those times when you weren't well, but I, I hadn't really thought about them in the context of, of how you writ- wrote, have written about them in the book. Can you talk about burnout because it is such an interesting part of that book? Yeah, and look, to be honest, that was quite challenging for me to write about. It's the first time I really have and let people into that world about what that's really like. I did it because particularly in recent years when I've had some frank conversations with people, I'm worried about a lot of people out, people out, I'm worried about a lot of people out there who are headed towards burnout and don't know what to do about it. So it's, it's what I call the um, Superman syndrome. It's where you have a strong work ethic, you work really, really hard and you get almost high on the recognition for that hard work and your ability to produce so much at such a high standard. Now, when you're young, you get away with that. You can work long hours, you can keep doing more and more. And to me, I started in high school. I'd literally, you know, I had years in high schools where I was school captain and student council president and debating captain, magazine editor, school newspaper editor, you know, doing the full academic load. I started in the school musical. Like, it's got the thing where you just take on more and more. And then people are so impressed at what you take on, you just keep taking on more and more. And you get away with it, you're like your teens, 20s, 30s. By the time you get to your 40s and 50s, you start to pay for it, unless you can pace yourself. And I see a lot of people on that, they've got the same syndrome, they're hooked on the reputation of being such hard workers who produce at such a level, and they can't break the addiction. And it is an addiction. So I wrote about it because I think people need to, to know what it is and deal with it before it actually affects their health. So what are your own ways of coping now with it? It is really a lot of self-reflection but also giving yourself permission. It took me a very, very long time for me to give myself permission just to slow down because once you get into that thing of feeling every minute, being totally busy all the time and getting the guilts every time you're not because the trouble is if, you, if you're that busy over that period of time, as soon as you slow down, you think, I'm guilty. I, I really, I really can't be doing this. I'm missing. You know, I'm, I should be doing something else. And you've got to retrain your body to think that's okay. So now, I actually really love doing nothing. That's been the thing I've taught myself. I can now sit on a chair for an hour and a half and just stare at a tree uh, and think, and I'm okay with that. But that took me so many years to do it, and I can only do it once I recognise I had a problem. Because for a long, long time, I thought, "Ah, oh, it's just me. I just work hard." Uh, it took a while to realise it was an actual problem. Because there was a nice line in the book you write about when you were a kid, 
and you wake up on school holidays and you thought, I've literally got nothing to do today. Yeah, and that's that took a long, long time to have that feeling again. I reckon after that it took me 40 years to ever wake up again with that same feeling because it just didn't work like that. You fill your whole day and your whole agenda and you lose that feeling of an open-ended day, which is a wonderful feeling when you can recapture it. And it, it's probably the role of the individual is so important, isn't it, in that because probably corporations aren't as well placed as the individuals to know that there's a time when you've got to teach yourself that you can check out. Yeah, I think that's right because I think it's also corporations, organisations, do you take responsibility for that? And I think that's been another big change in COVID. I think pre-COVID people thought, okay, you look after people in their work zone. So whatever's happening during work and, you know, that's monitoring to a point. But I think people's mental and emotional health, I'm not sure companies saw that as their responsibility so much. And I think during COVID, because we had that blurring of health lines and a lot of people having um, quite serious mental health challenges because of the nature of lockdowns and uh, the challenges of working alone, etc. So I think corporations and organisations have taken a lot more responsibility for that. Uh, but the, but that's another one that's still in flux, really. Where, where is the right place to draw that line? What is the right amount of responsibility? And how do we just make sure that humans keep functioning? Because I think one thing I've learned off the back of all the writing I've done in the workplace, all the messages and emails and things I've had is people are a lot more fragile than we realise. And some people who you think are the most confident, you know, measured um you know totally in control are the ones who are actually the most fragile and they're they're actually putting up a facade all the time so i've been pretty happy about the fact that a few people have sort of come to me and said i I, i'm done with the facade because i think it's really time people are just honest with themselves about these things and their own mental health you wrote oh it's almost 10 years ago now a book uh, called tall people don't jump uh, I think it was around about 2014 or something like that, were some great observations on human behaviour. WorkNATO comes along in 2023 and, as we said, it's it's much more workplace-oriented. If you're going to do a WorkNATO sequel in about 10 years, what are the things you think you'd be trying to focus on, you know, as markers of, of, of where we've come from in 10 years? So I think 10 years would be a good vantage point to look back and see whether the things that are happening now played out the way we might expect. Uh, I think 10 years' time would be a really interesting vantage point on AI, for example. But I think the most important thing will be where humans are headed and the generational change. And if you look at it, there's quite a lot of fundamental things. Look, one of the really interesting things is we're going to have six different generational groups in the same workplace, for example. And if you look at, say, a you know, Gen Z type person, compare that to a a baby boomer and how different those worlds are so how we can adapt the world of work to these vastly different groups with groups with vastly different aspirations i think um, that'll be one of the interesting things to look back on but i'm I'm mostly curious about what humans are going to do because we keep focusing on the negatives when technological change takes things away we tend to focus on that's our natural instinct but the more interesting thing is where are humans going what are actually going to do over the next 10 years because we will have the capacity to do that with the changes that are happening now. And I guess regardless of what era we're in, whether it be hundreds of years ago or, or in 10 years' time, the importance of gratitude probably doesn't diminish. And you write about gratitude in, in the book and write really well about it. I actually heard someone talking about Michael Parkinson, the famous chat show host who, um, who died recently, and... 
when I was a cricket writer, I remember that some of the cricket writers would talk about Michael Parkinson as a columnist and say what an unbelievably nice person he was to deal with. And in the interview I heard this morning, they said he was one of the most grateful people around because his father was a coal miner in an era in which people just followed their parents into work, but his parents made sure he followed the path he wanted to follow and he never forgot that, was always grateful for it. What about your take on gratitude? So I think um, my observation as a human being is if there's one thing a human being can do to change their whole disposition around life, it's to become grateful. And if you think about it, it's so simple. You can either lament what you don't have or be grateful for what you do have. And as soon as you cross that barrier, the gratitude just completely empowers you because you're thinking, well, you know, there's plenty of people worse off and I may not have everything in the world, but I've got these things and that's not bad at all because that's who I am and that's the hand that life has given me. And I think once you cross that barrier, you watch the people who are happiest in the world are the ones who've well and truly crossed that barrier. So if someone was to read work, NATO, what would you hope that they take out of it? Look, I think to me, I, when I wrote it, I was pretty conscious that it, it actually takes a bit of... Um, a bit of a self-challenge to think I even have the right to write these sort of books because um, I don't, you know, have I don't have a particularly big ego. So all during the book and a lot, a lot of the stage, even when I was getting ready to publish, I'm thinking, oh, "This is rubbish. Why is anyone? <laughs> why is anyone going to be vaguely interested in what I think?" So the only way I got through that is to say, "It's just for me. I, I wrote the book for myself. It's just really a message for myself to recall things I've observed and learnt over working for quite a period of time now. Beyond that." It's just if anyone else gets anything out of it, I'm really happy about that. People read their own lives into it, I'm happy about that. But for me, really, it's just a, a, a book to myself um, to remind myself about what I've learnt over a period of time. Well, I've very much enjoyed reading it. You've got a great skill and you always have to observe human behaviour and to give it some depth and some meaning. So congratulations on work, NATO, and thank you for coming in today. Thanks, Michael. Really enjoyed the chat and really appreciate the opportunity. And thanks for reading the book. Mm-hmm.